and the scripture reading for this morning is Psalm 97. So hear the word of the Lord. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. Because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. And give thanks to his holy name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together as we continue. Father, would you give me the ability to preach your word? And through it, may we know you better and honor you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Tom Wright was a college chaplain in Oxford, England, and every year he would make an effort to meet the new students and get acquainted with them. And often as he, he, he would meet the students, they would, uh, when they found out that he was a chaplain, say sheepishly, oh, I don't believe in God. Now, put yourself in the shoes of this chaplain for a moment. How would you respond Would you maybe give three arguments for the existence of God from nature and reason? Or would you just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, that's too bad, hopefully the next student believes in God? Or would you otherwise try to convince them to believe in God? Well, the way Wright responded was by asking them the question, that's interesting, which God don't you believe in? And as he listened carefully to the student describe the God that they don't believe in, what this God is like, what they do or don't do, the chaplain would simply respond, well, I don't believe in that God either. And if you are anything like these students, you're probably somewhat surprised by his response. But I think he's onto something. You see, there's all kinds of gods that people believe in, And these are, many of them are different in in many ways. And I think it's safe to say that most of us here in this room don't believe in most of these gods. Which has led some atheists to conclude that Christians and atheists are actually very alike. Because there's, say, a thousand gods that, that Christians don't believe in, but for atheists, it's just a thousand and one. And I think this idea about which god we believe in 
is one reason why every year it seems like more and more professing Christians deconstruct the faith that they once claimed. Because they find that they can no longer believe in the God they once did. A few years ago, Pew Research Center did a study that concluded that nearly 80% of Americans believe in God, but only slightly over half of Americans claim belief in the God of the Bible, which tells us that when we say God, we don't all mean the same thing. And that, that raises the question, which God are we talking about? Because unless we can specify which God we're talking about, Talking about God is about as helpful as asking if you know some guy named Steve. And if I asked you if you know Steve, you might say, Steve who? Or you might ask me to describe what he is like. And it's the same thing with God. As we get to know what God is called, we also get to know more of what he is like. And so for Advent this year, we're going through a series on the names of God titled, He Shall Be Called. Now Advent is a season that the church celebrates every year where we look back to a time when God came to earth as the man Jesus. And we remember how God in Jesus came to live among us. And we also look forward to the day when he will return to dwell with us forever. And in this Advent series this year, we're going to explore some of the names and titles of the God of the Bible. And as we do, we will learn something about who this God is and therefore how we ought to relate to him. And as we go through this series, we'll have opportunity to bring whatever beliefs we, we may have about God or whatever we have, may have been told about God into alignment with Scripture especially as we see uh, how these names of God find their ultimate and truest expression in the person of Jesus. And so the name or title that we're going to explore today is God Most High. And what we are going to see is that God Most High is worthy of our highest allegiance. God Most High is worthy of our highest allegiance. So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 97. And in Psalm 97, we catch a glimpse of what it means that the Lord is God most high. And as we do, we will see why this God is worthy of our highest allegiance. And the first reason that we'll see, the first reason why is because God most high reigns over all. God most high reigns over all. So let's see how this psalm using the metaphors of its time and culture, describes God's reign as king over all. The psalm begins by stating the simple fact that the Lord reigns over all. And actually, let's just pause right there to consider what does this mean? And what kind of response does God's reign evoke? Because there's all kinds of ways that people might respond to to those who reign over them. So for example, the text might say something the text might say, the Lord reigns, let the earth be disappointed. Or the Lord reigns, let the earth proceed cautiously. Or let the earth weep or be angry. Or let the earth be confused. 
But in this psalm, it states that the Lord reigns, therefore let the earth rejoice. But not just this land where we are here, but even the many coastlands. Let them also be glad. Which is especially striking when you consider the ancient context. Because people in that time popularly believed that gods had authority over limited particular domains. So there's, so there's one god that reigns over the hill country and another god that reigns over the plains. And there's one god who is, who is god over this land and another over that land. But this god, the most high god, he reigns over everything. And verse 2 goes on to describe the place from which he reigns. Every king reigns from his throne room. So how is the throne room of this God depicted? Well, we're given a vision of God that's so high and mighty that he's reigning not just over the earth, but he's also reigning in the heavens. The text says that clouds and thick darkness are all around him. And if there were two words that characterize his reign, what would they be? Terror and control? Power and greed? Strength and dominance? No. According to this psalm, the foundation of his throne or the chief characteristics of his reign are this. Righteousness and justice. He is their very definition. Verse 4 goes on and says that God is so high that he commands the lightning which lights up the world And the earth sees this spectacular display and it trembles. Now the image here is almost as if this God is so high in authority over all creation that he just has to snap his fingers and thunder and lightning spring forth to do his bidding. This idea that God is supremely controlled and rules with absolute authority over all creation is what theologians often call the sovereignty of God. And you can tell how much authority someone has by who obeys them, can't you? And by how many people obey them. And the Most High God, there is nothing in all of creation that does not obey Him. He is completely sovereign. So check out what it says in verse 5. It says, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Now in that culture, if you tried to imagine something that is infinitely sturdy and immovable, something high and immense and utterly unshakable, you would think of a mountain. And yet, even above the mountains, and even mightier than they are, is God most high. But in His presence... Even the mountains are like wax that melts in the fire which comes from the Most High's presence. As verse 6 says, the heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the peoples see His glory. Now as we have seen God Most High so far in this psalm as someone who is so high and transcendent, we can't help but respond in some way. And this psalm shows us that God Most High reigns over all. And what this means for us is that God Most High deserves our allegiance, so let's give it to Him. He deserves our allegiance, so let's give it to Him. 
In verse 7 and following, we see the contrasting responses of people to this view of God Most High. Verse 7 says, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. This verse explains that those who have worshipped lesser and lower things will be ashamed and embarrassed when compared to God Most High. Like, like this is who God is. This is who God Most High is. And all I've been worried about is Bitcoin or, or whatever I've been worried about. Or other lesser and lower things like, like politics or hobbies or your job, family and friends, possessions. Now this doesn't mean that we should be uninvolved in these things or we shouldn't care about these things, but it means that God Most High deserves our highest allegiance in each and every domain. So we're never to use God as a means to an end where he's only used as a prop uh, to, to prop up our own political agenda or economic or career aspirations or otherwise gain clout with other people because he is the most high God. So whatever it is that we do or pursue, we have to do it his way or else not at all. And to the extent that we fail to do this, we worship idols. Now I think that as, as modern people, we especially modern people in the West, we often have a difficult time understanding the idolatry of the biblical world. But it's a theme that it's all over the place in the Bible. And when it appears, I think that we're often tempted to, to distance ourselves from it in a couple ways. Now, we, we either say, well, worshipers of idols, that's, that's ridiculous. They just did that because these silly ancient people just weren't as enlightened as we are today. Or we turn it into some kind of spiritual metaphor where we say that, um, that bowing down to a block of wood is like giving our allegiance to, um, to money or to cars or to something. Now, I actually just said something like that a few seconds ago, so I'm not saying that's necessarily an inappropriate comparison. But what I am saying is that whether we laugh at the absurdity of the beliefs of ancient people or turn it into a metaphor... The effect of either can be that we feel distanced from the reality that the Bible is speaking of. Now, sometimes I think we read things in the Bible like worshipers of images and the gods that they represent, and we just kind of roll our eyes at it. Like, how stupid that they're literally worshiping images as we scroll through our Facebook and Instagram feeds, liking and reacting to these images as we worship the money, sex, power and status which are behind them. I mean, has there ever been a a culture in which images are more prominent than ours? How many images do we see at the store or wear on our clothing or see on billboards as we drive down the road? How many hours a day do we spend on social media curating and comparing our public images or watching product advertisements or otherwise just staring at screens? I mean, think about it. When was the last time you bought something without seeing a literal image? Can you even, is it even possible to sell a thing without an image these days? When was the last time you didn't see a product advertised by images that made some appeal to money, sex, or power? 
You can't, you can't even barely buy junk food that doesn't appeal to one of these gods, can you? Well, we might say, well, yeah. Sure, but we recognize that those are just images. They're not, they're not actual gods or anything. They're just images that represent that thing. But that's exactly the point. That's exactly what ancient idol worshipers would have said too. They knew it was just a block of wood. But they also knew, they also believed that it stood for something, that this image stood for something. And what they were really worshiping was the power that stood behind it. Perhaps the ancient people knew something that we do not. You see, the the gods that we as humanity worship, they don't change. They just rebrand themselves to appeal to a new culture and target audience. So whether we, we call it Zeus or power, whether we call it Aphrodite or sex, we're all striving for the same things. And we still even, even make sacrifices, whether financial or time or our relationships. We make physical sacrifices or emotional sacrifices in pursuit of what these things offer and promise us. You see, behind every image that preys on our, that preys on our desires is a very real spiritual power. And so the fact that God most high, that God is, the, the claim that God is most high is not just an empty claim like how my homeschool friend would always brag that he was first in his class. There's, there's, all sorts of, there's all sorts of things that compete for our attention. But because God most high reigns over all, he deserves our highest allegiance. So let's give it to him. If we do, ours will be like the response in verses 8 and 9. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Verses 10 through 12 finish off this psalm and further instruct us, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. God Most High is worthy of our highest allegiance because he reigns over all. And yet, while, God is, while God's sovereign reign over all explains why God Most High deserves our allegiance, there's still another, and I would say even greater, reason why he is worthy of our allegiance. We just read a psalm which describes God's sovereign rule over all. And yet, the place where we see God most high, most clearly and powerfully revealed, more than anywhere else, is when God most high became God most low. We read in Luke 1, verses 30 through 35. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. At Advent, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, came down from the highest heavens and was born as a child in the lowest of circumstances. The paradox here is that the sovereign ruler over all of creation was not born into halls of royalty, but among farm animals. The God who created the mountains and the stars and the distant galaxies is now an utterly helpless baby who can't even feed himself. It all seems so backwards that the God most high becomes the God most low. We might expect that by his very nature, God most high would necessarily mean that he remains distant and aloof, high above us in power, completely separate from those of us down below. And yet, this is how God most high reveals himself to us. So if you want to see God most high most clearly, don't look for lightning bolts and earthquakes and melting mountains. Instead, look to this low-born child lying in a manger. Because the claim here is that the very control center of the universe was this baby boy. When we see Jesus, we see God most high. As the letter to the Colossians says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The claim of Scripture is that God Most High made himself low in the person of Jesus so that he could come for the lowly because this is who God Most High is. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 57, 15. The Lord says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is who God most high is. A God who makes himself low to rescue the lowly. A God who doesn't reward those who are strong but who rewards the weak. A God who doesn't praise those who have it all together, but who came for the broken. And I think if we're honest, this is is the God we really need. And this is the God we 
we want. A God who makes himself low so that the low can be raised high. The God most high become God most low. Now I wonder how that sentence sounds to you. God most high became God most low. And to be honest, I, I almost didn't include that in my sermon because it just, it just kind of feels wrong. <laughs> like it just, it just feels so backwards and upside down, kind of sacrilegious and disrespectful, almost inappropriate. And yet, this is precisely what makes it such a beautiful paradox. The fact that God became low is what God most glories in. He glories in this, that his highness is most seen in his lowness. In the letter to the Philippians we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we see God most high reveal himself as God most low in the person of Jesus, we see someone who, because of his sovereign power, not only deserves our allegiance, but we see someone who, because of his incredible humility and love, wins our allegiance. In Advent, we see that God most high became God most low, and in doing so, God most high wins our allegiance, so let's follow him. I think we would all agree that it's, it's one thing to give what you owe to someone because they demand and deserve it, to give to someone because we have to, however begrudgingly we may do it, but it's quite another thing to give to someone because they have won it from you. And anything then that you give comes not under threat of force, but willingly and freely because you've, you've been won over and you can't, you can't help it. This lowly God, revealed in the person of Jesus, is now someone that we gladly put above all else. You see, there's plenty of other gods that claim to have authority over us. Other gods that claim to be high on power. But so long as they only remain high above us, they can never claim to have truly loved us. A God who remains high in heaven could never truly understand our brokenness. A God who remains high above is one that we could only hope to relate to with groveling submission. And so we might serve this God out of obligation, but he can never be a God that we love. A God that merely deserves our allegiance, we might give only what is required. But a God that wins our allegiance by making himself low, this is someone who we will readily follow and give to generously. So I know that there's all sorts of things that we come into this room with. 
all sorts of difficulties and frustrations that we're facing. And I know that from my own life, sometimes when I'm feeling this way, it's hard to bring myself to, to, give, to give worship to God Most High. Because in all of His strength and His majesty, He just feels so distant and unrelatable to, to where I'm at and, and what I'm going through. And it's hard to follow Him when I feel so low. But when I see Him in the person of Jesus, the God most low, I find myself drawn to Him. And our allegiance to God also demonstrates itself, not just in what we give to Him, but also in who we seek to become as we follow Him. So as we follow God most high, as He's revealed in Jesus, we're so won over by His gentleness and lowliness that we express our allegiance to Him by being like Him in His lowliness. We, we give ourselves to this God, but we, we also follow Him as well. And we don't try to lift ourselves up above everyone else, but by, but by loving our enemies. This is how we express our allegiance to Him. By giving to the poor and by lowering ourselves to serve others, especially the lowly. And so we give Him what we have, but we also follow Him and seek to become like Him in making ourselves low because Jesus has won our allegiance. This is how greatness is seen. God Most High is worthy of our highest allegiance because He became God Most Low. And so friends, as we enter into this season of Advent, may we see more clearly who God is. Not who we've imagined him to be or maybe who we've been told that he is, but the God that is revealed in the scriptures and known by the names through which he is called. And as we consider God most high in this Advent season, may we see him most clearly in his son, Jesus. The God who reigns over all creation and who deserves our allegiance. This most high God that is also, he's also so great that he became God most low and won our allegiance. This is a claim that no other God makes, only Jesus. Jesus, God most high, he is worthy of our highest allegiance. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy. You are the most high God. And you deserve our allegiance. So help us to give it to you. And you supremely reveal yourself as God most low. And you win our allegiance. Help us to follow you. Because you are worthy of our highest allegiance. Amen.